0: Hope y'all are doing well. Let's wait for the music. I could hear y'all. I could literally hear y'all singing behind the curtain there. It was awesome. Made me feel like, woo, snow more often. Let's do one service and let's all get together. I could hear you. All right. Yeah, we can clap out. That's all right. All right. So if you have a Bible, you can open up. We're in First Peter. First Peter. If you don't have one, just look underneath you. There's a white and there's a blue one, Bible underneath there. Take it. It's yours. Keep it. Uh, Read it for the rest of your life, uh, hopefully, or if you have one at home, give it to someone that you know that doesn't have one. We're in 1 Peter, we'll be in chapter 2, chapter 2, and we are going to start at verse 13. Start at verse 13, we're going to finish chapter 2 today. So 1 Peter chapter 2, starting at verse 13. I'm going to pray, and then uh, we'll, we'll read the text, and I will... Yeah, let's do it that way. I'm gonna pray and then we'll read the text and I'm gonna explain some things that are going on and then we'll, we'll jump in. So let's pray together. Lord, we, uh, we thank you so much. Um, as we just sang, um, let us become more aware of your presence. It's, it's your word and your spirit that cause us to be more in love with Christ, to cause us to see and understand the gospel more clearly, that cause our hearts to become aflame with a deep desire to worship you with our lives, um, that cause us to see you in the text. And so we are, all of us, including myself, all of us, absolutely, completely um, desperate for your presence to come now. So would you come and fill this room, fill our hearts Give us a great understanding of your word, but also, Lord, give us a, a deep passion for you, a deep love to want to know you in your word, to see you in your word. Um, we, we pray that you would be with us now and bless this time, and as we go out, <coughs> God, that we would live differently because of what we've seen. This text addresses us directly in the way that we interact in this city every day, and I pray that you would help us see that. And live that out. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we'll be in First Peter chapter 2. I'm going to go ahead and read the text 13 through 25. 13 through 25. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him. To punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Servants. to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He, Christ, committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed for you were straying like sheep, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So in this context, if you remember first Peter, uh, as we were been talking, this was written somewhere in the mid-60s, maybe 63, 80, 63 or so. And so it's about 30 years after Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Uh, they had... After Jesus' resurrection, gone and kind of set up a community, and in that community they were living out. I mean, there were no Christians before; like they were the first set of Christians trying to figure out how do we do this. And then persecution came, and as persecution came, uh, in verse one you can see they were dispersed all over the place. And as they were dispersed all over the place, that community learning how to live as Christ followers um, together was kind of broken apart, and those communities were dispersed into smaller little pockets of people. And Peter wants to write to them and address a few different things. He's them to understand, um, now that you're not in community and you're kind of all over the place, let me give you some verbal uh, writings and un- instruction on what it means to live as, as someone as a Christian now. You, you're not in together, you're off, and it's going to be harder to know that. So we saw that in the last few, few weeks. He's giving them um, instruction on holy living, instruction on Christian living, but also some other things. They had absolutely some, some questions in their head. Um, why are we suffering? I thought we were Christ followers. I thought we were following you. And we just got persecuted. This Roman empire is terrible. Why is this even happening? And so he's going to, as we're going to see, starting at chapter 3, verse 8, address that. Um, and so, but in this section we're in right now, so we've talked about holiness. And here, we're in this section between now and 3.7. And 3.80 talks about suffering. But in this particular section, they also had other questions. Which is, if this government is so oppressive, are we under obligation to submit to them? Do we, need, do we need to listen to them? Because <laughs> what they're doing is pretty wrong. So is there a need for us to, to stay here and be a part of this? Or can we rebel against it? So this particular section, 2.13, all the way to 3.7, is really about the idea of submission. Submission and authority, and so here's the way it's going to actually look. I'm going to do chapter 2, uh, 13 through 25, and we're going to look at submission to the governmental authorities. We're even going to look at submission um, in, in that particular time period of servant and master, but... Carrying in the idea of submission, uh, Peter also addresses what it means to be, uh, in, in the context of Christian living and marriage, what submission looks like. Now, we're not going to do that next week. So three, if we're going in sequential order, 3, 1 uh, through 7 would be next week, and we would be in the big eye kind of umbrella idea of submission. We're going to pick up that and move it down to February 14th. And so uh, next week, we're going to just start at chapter 3, verse 8. And I'll just continue. Yes, February 14th is chosen strategically, um, if you're wondering. And I'm not even preaching it, finally. Um, You heard me preach on marriage over and over. Jack is going to preach on marriage on that particular week. So I'm I'm super excited to let you have like a second second idea, second angle on marriage. I've, I've preached every marriage sermon here at Remedy the whole seven years. And so I'm excited to sit under the tutelage of Jack Blankenship um, uh, for for submission and really about marriage. So that's going to be February 14th. So the way that we're, we're, we're going to be moving, just so you know, when you come in next week, if you've been studying 3-1-7, we won't be in 3-1-7. That'll be February 14th. We're going to pick up at 3-8 and go sequentially until we get to February 14th. Jack will come back et al. will go the rest of the way. So uh, that's what we're going to be doing over the next few weeks. But this week we're looking at 2.13. 2.13. And I think this this particular text even comes at a timely manner for us as you know, you can't, especially be in South Carolina, you can't turn on the TV or ride down the road without seeing all kinds of presidential candidates. And so government at least is on our mind, I think anyway, and we're trying to think about who we're going to pick, their promising things, what do we like, what do we think is important, etc. Um, and so even about the idea of submission to government, do we need to, do we need to submit ourselves to government that we, that we don't disagree? If, if whatever you're, you know, governmental decisions are whenever the people that I like or don't like specifically don't like are in, do I need to submit to them? Do I need to think because these are the same kind of type questions that they were asking 2000 years ago, definitely different. And I think that theirs was probably worse. They were, they were being persecuted in a much larger scale than we are. But those kinds of questions that they're asking are similar to some of the kind of questions that we're asking, um, And even how far can we as believers go against the government in our Christian belief and still have to submit to them? At what point do we have to like say, okay, I can't submit to that. So we'll talk about some of those things today. Um, but first thing I want to do is look at verse 13. 13 through 17 is kind of the first section on submission. The title of the sermon is Gospel Submission. Uh, and w- w- there's three points, and you'll see you'll see them pretty clearly. But the first one is uh, in regard to citizen uh, submission, citizen submission. We're called to be citizens of this particular state of South Carolina. We're called to be citizens of America in um, and, and some kind of uh, manner that's different than being a citizen of heaven, but we do nonetheless know that we're supposed to be called to be citizens. Now, I want to uh, I want to remind you from last week why this is important. So if you will, look up with me at ch- uh, chapter 2, verse 9, and let's remember why this section is, is important. So he just got through telling them that they're supposed to live a certain way as God's people. You're supposed to live a certain way as God's people. That is, holy. You're supposed to be... On fire for Christ, pursuing holiness with everything you have for a purpose. For a purpose. Look at verse 9. And he reminds them, you're a chosen race. That's, that's a new race. That's the, the Christian race, the chosen race. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And then here's what you're supposed to do. This is who you are. That you may proclaim the excellencies. This is declare the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So everybody that's a believer, you are called to declare to the people around you all over. I am a, a follow of Christ and you need to know how awesome he is. We're called to declare his excellencies because once we were uh, not a people, but now we are God's people. Once we hadn't received mercy, but now we have received mercy. And then he tells us, So beloved, I urge you then as sojourners and exiles, that's just a reminder that your real citizenship isn't here. You're just kind of exiled here on earth, but your real citizenship is in heaven. So we shouldn't get too comfortable here because this isn't our final resting place. Being with Christ is. And then he says, to abstain from the passions of the flesh. So don't be unholy, which wage war against your soul. And here it is. Verse 12 is very key. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. You can substitute unbelievers. So this is why when we're looking at this next idea of submitting to the governmental authorities and living as a citizen in Rock Hill, state, state of South Carolina, America, in a certain way, because the point is what we see up in verses 9. Number one, we're supposed to declare the excellencies of him. We we live as Uh, under gospel submission as good citizens, because we want to, with our lives, declare that God is awesome, but also, as we see in verse 12, keep your honor or keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We want to also live as good as citizens, not just to declare the honor of God, the glories of God, the excellences of God, but also when we're around the unbelievers living out as good citizens, they can see that and they'll think, all right, they live differently. They live differently. So as we're going into this, this section on authority, it's, this is, don't just hear this as you need to be a good citizen and the end. There's reasons. There's reasons because as we've seen in 9 through 12, it gives glory to God and it wins unbelievers over. So here we're seeing some things: citizen submission, citizen submission. And what should we do? Verse thirteen. Here's the first thing you need to know about. There's some subset, sub subpoints under number one here. Um, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governor as sent by him. So we see the first thing is that we should citizens should submit to the governing authority. Citizens should submit to the governing authority. So, we'll talk about what that means. But let me go ahead and read one other little section. Paul also writes an idea on this. uh, On what it means to submit to the governing authority. In Romans chapter 13. This is what he says. Let every person be subject or submit to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God and those that exist that have been instituted by God. That means every government that's ever been started ever, it didn't happen without God instituting it. Our president, our previous president, our previous president, our previous president, our previous president, the presidents of all the different other countries, dictators or presidents or rulers, even in Rome. I mean, hear, about how, hear the context by which these people are hearing it. The Roman government that was oppressing them, that they weren't even allowed to be Christians, persecuting them, causing them to disperse. And he's saying, God caused that, that particular government to be there. So since God is the ultimate hand on who's there, you have to to submit to them. Because otherwise, you're not submitting to God ultimately. Verse 3, and this is Romans. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities, here it is, resists what God has appointed. And those who resist um, will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. That's on the whole. On the whole, governments are sent there to... Keep order so that those that live can have a decent life. We know that there's always exceptions. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then, what is, then do what is good and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. That means it's not in vain that he's been given, government has been given the right to be able to carry out capital punishment. We're not going to get into the intricacies of the, the fact that we know that there's injustices with that in every government since it's been given. Uh, we know that that happens, but it, it, on the whole, we can say the Lord has given the state that right. All right. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For the same reason, you must also pay taxes for the authorities or ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes who own, to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. So here we see that we know as believers we are to submit to our governing authorities. You know, we're going to give some applications on what that can actually mean and look like. But on the whole, we know that it definitely means honor them. We know that it means honor them. So as much or as little as you agree with this president or the previous, that's, that covers both parties, or you know, the, ind- the independents, as much as you love them, what's true is you are to honor them. We are to honor them. What does it mean and how much and do we go all the way to sin? What about those that, are, that want to lead us to sin? What about those that it's really tough to honor? This is, this is John Piper. This is what he says. In this way, Christian submission to the institutions of this world, when it's tough to, to honor those that we disagree with, it, that, are, that are our governmental authorities, city, state, government. It, when we find it tough because we disagree with their, with their uh, views. This is what Piper says, very helpful. This is how we honor them. This is how we can continue to do it. And this way, Christian submission to the institutions of this world becomes an act of tribute to God's authority. So the way that we honor them is by remembering that we are honoring God first and that helps us honor them. He says this, it's an act of tribute to God's authority over the institutions of the governments of the world. You look a king or a governor in the eye and say, I submit to you, I honor you, but not for your sake. I honor you for God's sake. I honor you because God owns you and rules over you and has sovereignly raised you up for a limited season and given you the leadership that you have. And for his sake and for his glory and because of his rightful authority over you, I honor you. So, We are absolutely commanded, whether it's this particular government or the one before us, whichever party you fall into, every one of us are called as believers to submit to the governing authority, and I think primarily by honoring them. But it doesn't just stop in government authorities. It also means from stop signs to police officers to local mayors. We honor them as well. We submit to those particular people, those governing authorities, um, whenever they stop sign tells us to stop, stop light tells us to stop, or a police officer pulls you over because you don't have your seatbelt on again, then maybe personal experience. Like you, you have to, you have to submit to them. You have to, it happened with the kids in. It was, they'd never been pulled over. I think Aiden was like four at the time. And he's like crying, daddy, are you going to jail? I'm like, no, I'm not going to jail. It's just a seat belt. It happens all the time. Anyway, uh, uh, am not going to talk about that. My point is from stop signs to police officers to local mayors, um, God has put every single one of them there. And so, we don't need to feel an inclination to rebel against them. Instead, we should feel an inclination to honor them, listen to them. Because on the whole, most of these people, as Romans 13 says, are put there for our good. Because they he- are here, because laws are here, people are here, and these um, mayors, etc. are here. On the whole, they, they're looking out for our good. They help this particular society, and in all societies, function Um, for the citizens good. So we, we need to honor them. We need to listen. And even in regard to legislature, laws, how as Christians, are we to be active or passive, um, in legislature or even active and passive against legislature? Are are we to just kind of just, well, that's, that's the secular world. I'm going to sit over here and not worry about it. As Christians, I think even in regarding to legislature, whether we agree or disagree, we should as believers be actively involved, um, making cogent arguments. Not red herrings, but cogent biblical arguments why we think this particular legislature should be passed or should not be passed and, and winsomely, lovingly win them over with arguments that make sense. Not just target them, but the, but the law. So if you just target them, you're not, you're not honoring them. You're not listening and obeying, I think, the spirit of what we're trying to learn here. So... legislature, laws that you agree with or disagree with, we are, as Christians, we should be part of that. We should be actively part of that because we live here too. And we want to show believers, I'm sorry, we want to show unbelievers that we care about what they care about. And we care about this city and we want to be actively involved in it. So we should, as, as Christians, submit to the governing authorities, submit to the laws around us, submit to those who uphold the laws around us, care for them, love them, not just so when a police officer uh, pulls you over, not just obey, but also whenever you're not disobeying laws and you see police officers, tell them thank you. Send them gift cards or whatever, you know, like tell them thank you for, you know, I've been to cities where it's tough. tough. I, went, I went to take, Tegucigalpa, Honduras, where literally every house, like in our neighborhood that I live in, every house has barbed wire fences around it. Because if you don't, you're just going to get, you're going to get, people going to come in your house and steal your stuff we don't have to do that here. It was, it was like, wow, it's way better in America because I don't have to like put barbed wire and we worry that people are going to steal because we have a government that, and, and people around us that protect us, that keep, keep from, keep us from having to live lives like that, which, you know, they're happy people there. So, but I'm, I'm definitely glad. I'm not trying to say like, they're all like dreadfully, they're far more happy than we are because we're so materialistic. Anyway, um, but I'm still thankful that we have people around here keeping us safe and laws that keep us safe. All right, so the next thing we see is another, some other things we need to notice about things that government do, does for us is, or, uh, or to governors that are sent by them to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So this punish is a deterring effect. The punishing of people that do evil, whether it's you know from fines all the way to, to the highest things, that, depending on what they've done. Punishing them deters evil, and it carries out retribution for us, so the state is doing it it 's not vigilantes doing it God and an, God has set up the government, so the government does these things, and we don 't have vigilantes running around trying to carry out retribution. instead, we have the city, and that 's always the government, and that 's always been god 's plan that not vigilantism instead that the government does these things. The civil authority exists to punish wrong and give out. The things that are done right. So um, as we live in this particular society as believers, verse 15 says, For this is the will of God that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So as believers we are supposed to live out a certain way. And that's by doing good. That means obeying the laws and honoring them. All right. so the next thing I want you to see is this. Verse 15 and 16. uh, It says... We should do good and then live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. So, we know that we're supposed to honor, but we're also supposed to be good citizens. We, we are to be good citizens. So, point B under here, under citizen submission is true servants of God are to be good citizens. We're to obey the laws and... Seek the welfare of the city. And we even, as we, if y'all remember back in the journey, when we're looking at Jeremiah 29, we know that seeking the welfare of the city is literally mission. That that was mission for them to build up the welfare of the city, to have babies and ha- buy houses and plant gardens. That, as they were doing that, setting up a, a, an outpost of Christian Christianity in that city. That's what we can do. Become good citizens. Set up a missional outpost in our city. Have babies buy houses, plant gardens, be good citizens here, that that actually is mission happening. When people see that and we're living our lives out, they see that they get involved into that missional outpost, they can become believers. And so that's actually carrying out the great commission in Matthew 28 when we're there. Not just doing that, but while we're doing that, we're proclaiming the gospel as well. That that particular setup, that society that I'm talking about is where the gospel is is just flourishing. When you're telling people about Jesus, it will flourish there. And so we need to be good citizens doing that. So true servants of God are good citizens. And then lastly, and this is getting back to what I was saying, verse 17. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Good citizenry biblically manifests itself by honoring all. You can see the progression there. This is what I'm talking about. When, whenever we have this president, particularly now, your number one goal is to... Honor him and pray for him. You may disagree. Or the previous administration. Your number one goal is to honor him and pray for him. It's not to disparage him as much as you can. Or in the future if there's ever a her. It's not to disparage her. But instead as believers. Biblically. We are commanded to honor them and pray for them. To honor them and pray for them. You can see the progression here in verse 17. Honor everyone. So no matter who they are in general all the citizens, we honor them, and then kind of a step up, you can see love the brotherhood, so we treat fellow Christians with love, and then even more so, you can take your next step up, fear God, and when we're doing those particular things, then we're able to as it says, honor the emperor, or for us, our president, or in that particular time period, the, the Roman emperor. So that's, that's the first one. So let's take a little sidestep, and, and do a little application. I'm going to try to do this a couple times today, um, and uh, maybe put some 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 uh, I don't know some tangible examples to what we're talking about. I think this is the hardest one, and I picked the hardest one because uh, if we can pick the hardest one and figure him out, then it should flow for us pretty easily. What about Bonhoeffer? That's my question. What about Bonhoeffer? So Bonhoeffer lived in Germany, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, during the '40s. In Germany, whenever Hitler was in reign, and so, <laughs> how is he supposed to live this out? If we can figure out like hard scenarios like that, then I figure we can get to for us pretty tangible examples of what we're supposed to do. So, I uh, I contacted one of my one of my uh, buddies from school. He's he's like a Bonhoeffer genius. He's doing his dissertation on Bonhoeffer, and I was like, how did Bonhoeffer obey? First Peter 2.13, go. And, you know, like when we we're in class, we weren't even talking about Bonhoeffer. We we're just talking about, you know, donuts or pizza. Well, let me talk about Bonhoeffer's ideas on donuts. But like he always brought it back to Bonhoeffer. And so whenever I sent him a, an email that said, how did Bonhoeffer obey First Peter 2.13? Without notes, within like three minutes, he sent me like 10 bullet points. Well, this is just my thoughts without notes on Bonhoeffer. He's read everything. So I'm gonna give you his work uh, Devin Maddox's work on Bonhoeffer, and I think he, 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 uh, he gives some good points. And I, let's, let's look at this, and I think once we see this, we can say, okay, if, if Bonhoeffer was able to obey 1 Peter 2.13, ultimately obey 1 Peter 2.13, then we can see how it applies to us. So Bonhoeffer in Germany, Hitler's over him. How does he, how does he obey this with, with Hitler? With Hitler. This is it. Bonhoeffer, he says, would affirm First Peter two thirteen as a genuine real call to discipleship. Interestingly enough, so it's a it's a matter of discipleship to be able to be someone who can put themselves as a uh, as a person that honors the emperor. Bonhoeffer hated violence. If in case you don't know, the reason why I'm saying what about Bonhoeffer is because it's, it, there's reports that Bonhoeffer was a part of a group that tried to kill Hitler at one point. So that's why I picked Bonhoeffer. Like if you're trying to kill someone, I'm thinking you didn't honor them. So. Uh, this is this is the uh, this is what he said. Bonhoeffer hated violence and really felt called to peace. He loved peace. Bonhoeffer, he says, ultimately did submit himself to the emperor Hitler um, because he actually never did kill him, and he ended up dying in a prison. So ultimately, that's true. But what about the uh, the, the the going after him and trying to kill him? This is what he says: um, the Bible, which does not contradict itself is full of politically subversive people, and sometimes the Bible even will give praise to them. Further, he says, the Nazi state, and this is where uh, Bonhoeffer, you can take this or leave it, but I think that this is a pretty good argument. The Nazi state was so corrupt, it was so illegitimate, that Hitler became an illegitimate emperor, and was no longer um, under this particular Command to honor him because he was illegitimate. He he became to where he was not someone that should be honored and should be taken out. Now, killing him is not the way to do it. Um, Christians should not murder, but he actually didn't end up murdering. Um, So Bonhoeffer, looking at this, who was German, so followed Luther. And if you know anything about Luther, he's he's pretty strong with his language. He says this: Bonhoeffer would probably. cite Luther here who would say when faced with really two poor options and you know the gospel means forgiveness then you should just sin boldly don't do that but that's what he says. Sin boldly because you know the Lord's going to forgive you. And just say, I don't know which one to do. So I'm going to try to do the lesser of the two. And just trust that you're going to forgive me because I live in a fallen world. Not, this is not an invitation to you to just go out and sin boldly because you're going to be forgiven. Not at all. But that's what he would say likely would happen. And so silent restraint in the face of evil would probably be sin. Especially when it, with an illegitimate emperor. And so Bonhoeffer was convinced of that that the greater sin was to allow Hitler to continue. That was the greater sin in his mind of an illegitimate emperor. And that's why he put together a group to try to, because millions and millions and millions of Jews were being killed. And he thought the greater atrocity is to let him continue to live. So between the two, I'll pick if he dies, millions of Jews will possibly start to getting to live. Now, that's how he ans- we can answer the Bonhoeffer question. I think that that means for us, we're not anywhere near those kinds of scenarios. But for us, then, we honor until our particular president um, or government is illegitimate. And if we ever come to a time where there's the worst of all possible situations, we choose the lesser evil. And we, I wouldn't use the Lutheran language of sin boldly, but I would say we, we, we do all that we can to not sin. And if there's ever a, a, a choice between the two, then. We, we we pray like crazy for the Lord to give us guidance. So in this particular section, let's take one little let's take some application. I just have three little applications. One, honor your president, whoever's in office, your 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 guy, your man, or your woman, if he or she is in pre, uh, is in office, or your man or woman that you didn't vote for, you honor your president. You vote you you, you pray for them. You you honor them, and you you ask the Lord to guide them, because you know that the Lord put them in. Second thing, be careful about how many naysayers of the current administration you let yourself listen to. Be careful to guard your heart and mind of listening to naysayers that speak ill of the current administration, because if you do, you will eventually become so entrenched in that, you'll find yourself not honoring the president. You'll find yourself not honoring them. Now, I'm not saying You know, put yourself wholly into an administration that you disagree with. But I am saying, if you're around negativity too much, you'll just become that, and you'll not honor them. So you won't pray for them, and you won't feel obliged to. So be careful when you're around naysayers that don't like the current administration. They're on both sides. Um, And the last one, just as we talked about the last applications, what we talk about locally is don't rebel against your local authorities. Don't rebel against your local authorities. Stop signs, laws, police officers, uh, local people. Instead, give thanks that they bring safety to our cities and we don't have barbed wire fences around our houses. Give thanks that they're here. All right, so that's the first first section on authority. The next one is starting at verse 18. We'll go through this decently quick because there's not a ton of application. While this context is clearly master-slave, one thing I should say is you shouldn't impose... Our American slavery system from the 17 and 1800s back on to the 1st century, that's chronological snobbery, as C.S. Lewis says. And that's not exactly, while there are some similarities, they're not the exact same. Uh, and so it's not the exact same servant-master relationship as it was in America. I think America is far worse. I think that it's a terrible uh, thing that happened in America. But So I wouldn't take what happened to, uh, in America and import it back to the 1st century. 1st century was a little bit different. Uh, there are some similarities. Similarities, But it was a little bit different. I think what, what was in America was, was actually worse. Um, second thing, and this is just a uh, a comment before we get into it, is I've heard people say that whenever you see language in the Bible, specifically in the New Testament, where the writers say something like, slaves, you should submit to your masters, they because they've already done the first thing, import a, an American view of slavery back to the first century, then they also move to the next logical step, which, which is the Bible must endorse slavery. Um, and that's, that's not at all the case. The Bible would not endorse American slavery from 1700s and 1800s. And so we shouldn't make that mistake, uh, thinking that the Bible, when you see servants or slaves be subject to your masters with all respect, oh, the Bible says slavery's okay. That is not at all, at all, what is in the mind of Peter as he's writing. He's not thinking of America at all. And so we don't want to think that the Bible is giving a tacit endorsement of slavery, specifically in what was happening in America, which is an absolute gross injustice of human beings. Um, So don't import that into the text. Now... We'll go to this, and I would say, for us, it is servant masters, and we don't necessarily pray the Lord have that anymore, Um, and we don't have even what was happening in the first century. So maybe the best application we can make here is just try to, as we read this, if I want to apply these texts to my life, just think employer-employee. That's not exactly what it was even in the first century, but if there's a way to make an application for us today, it's probably employer-employee. Even though that's not exactly the relationship between servants and masters either. Servants, be subject to your master with all respect. Not only to the good, but to the gentle. Not only to the, uh, but also to, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. So if there's a master over you that's just a jerk, you still should submit to them. So we're in the second one, by the way. This is servant submission. Um, servant submission. For this is a gracious thing. That's the Greek word charis. This is a grace thing. Uh, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. While suffering unjustly, for what credit is it if when you sin, you are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So um, the first thing is you need to, and I'm going to use the language of the Bible. Uh, and I get, and as I said, you can make the applications for present day. You should submit to whoever your master is, no matter what their behavior is. No matter how bad or how good they are, you should submit to them. I'm, it's the first century slavery. It's not the same as us. And if we wanted to make an application, I can just say, your boss might be a jerk, but you're still called by God to honor him and submit to him uh, in some kind of way. It's easy, I think, to submit to knife bosses. Um, but if they're a jerk, you still have to submit to them. And the second thing I would add is just what it says right there. God sees submitting as gracious, as carous, as a grace-filled thing. God sees submish- submitting as gracious and therefore it's Christ-like because that's who Christ is when we submit to our unjust master. Uh, you can put up B, to our unjust master. And again, that just means for us today, the application, not the meaning, but the application would be boss. Um, so... When we do that, we put on display the, the greatness of Christ in our life. And again, for verse 20, for what craze of you when you endure and beaten for it, you endure. But if when you do good, you suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Which means, back up to verses 9 through 12, we're doing those two things. We're proclaiming the excellencies of God and we're living in such a way in front of the unbelievers of the world that they will see our conduct and likely glorify God on the day of visitation. They'll glorify God on visitation in two ways, which become a believer and worship him or not become a believer and glorify God because God will then give them judgment. But we can see here that no matter who they are, no matter how they treat us, we should submit to them because in the same way that government is put over us as as by God, so are are, our people that employ us. All right. Verse 21 starts a new section. That was, that was the servant submission. I, I went through it quickly because I, I don't think it necessarily applies as much as the, these other two. All right, verse 21. This last one is gospel submission. Gospel submission. And this is uh, the first two deal with government and masters. This one is just specifically going to zoom in on Jesus. So we're going to see, and, and this is the anchor uh, the, the The ability to obey those other two rests in this section, because Jesus is the means by which submission has been illustrated for us, and because of the gospel has has given us new life, we can do these other things so gospel submission and the first thing regarding gospel submission is Christ is our example, Christ is our example. we see that in verse twenty one for To this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you. So to this, that's to submission to the government authorities and to those that might be your employers or fill in kind of how you want to say to submission, you have been called, and you can either you can even take that down to 3137 regarding submission to your spouse. But we have been called to submission because Jesus Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example. So Christ is the ultimate example of submission. And so if you want to know what submission looks like in these things. How do I submit to these things? Look to Christ. He has given us the ultimate example on how to submit. Leaving you examples so that you might follow in his footsteps. Literally, his footsteps are the footsteps of ultimate submission to the Father. I'm called to submit. I can look at Jesus and I can do this correctly. And here's how he did it. You'll see it in verses 22 and 23. He committed no sin, neither was there deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. This is the example of Christ's submission. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to God who judges justly. Now these won't be on the screen, but here's, here's the, the three things. They're right there in the text of how Jesus submitted himself as our example, and we can do it. He didn't sin against anyone. You see it right there in 22. He committed no sin. He did not sin against anyone. So the way that we, if you want a, an example of how to submit, don't sin against people. That's, that's one way to, to actually submit to people correctly. Don't sin. Jesus was completely sinless and that underscores his ability to be the perfect sacrifice and atone for our sins. But in regard to example, therefore we should submit ourselves to be like Jesus and strive to not sin against others. So if you want to know how you can actually submit to people, don't sin against them. Don't commit sins against them. Next one. He did not return evil for evil. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Not only do you not sin against them, you don't return evil for evil. Let, let me give you a reason why. Paul gives us the reason why, the ultimate big, huge top of the line reason why we don't ever sin against people. It's in Romans chapter 12. If you want to know why you don't need to feel compelled to return evil for evil is because God is going to do that for you one day. So you don't have to do it. And when he does it, it's going to be perfect. It's going to be just and way better than you could ever do it. So when someone jabs you in the nose, you don't have to jab them back in the nose or whatever. You know, someone sins against you far worse far worse. You don't need to feel compelled to do that same thing back to them because you just submit yourself to God and say, you're way better at retribution than me. You're going to do it more just than I will. And if I do it, it's going to be sinful. But if you do it, it won't be because you're God and you're perfect. So I'm submitting to you that one day ultimate, ultimate judgment is going to happen. Here it is. Starting at chapter 12, verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the le- the lowly. Here it is. Um, never be conceited. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is only honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as depends on you, which is who you have control over, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Here's why. Leave it to the wrath of God. You don't need to feel compelled to return evil for evil. Because the Lord will. This is where it gets amazing. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so, you will heat burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. Here's where this gets awesome. You don't need to feel compelled to return evil for evil because if they never become a believer in Christ, that sin they will receive punishment for it one day. They will receive ultimate punishment for it one day. So you don't have to feel, and God's wrath upon them will be far worse than what you can do. So God's punishment for their sin is way worse and way more just than you doing something. But here's the other side, and this is beautiful. You don't need to feel compelled to give any kind of wrath back to them because if they are a believer, the wrath you wanna give to them has actually already been given to Jesus. That sin they did against you, God knew that and didn't put it on them, but instead put it on Christ. And Christ has absorbed that, that just punishment already. So you don't need to feel compelled. You can say, they're a believer and they shouldn't have done it, but ultimately I know the wrath that I want to give to them was already put on Jesus for me. And you take a big step back and you say, the gospel's bigger than I even imagined. I'm going to, and that's how we can, submit ourselves and entrust ourselves then to to him. I'm going to believe that the atonement's bigger than my desire right now to repay. Because it's already put on Christ. And that's why you can see in verse 23 another way that we... So the first one is you don't sin. The other is you don't return evil for evil. And verse 23b leads into that third way that we, we submit, which is... He continued entrusting himself to God who judges justly. Whenever you're sinned against, you don't have to sin against, back against them because you continually entrust yourself to God. I'm just going to trust you that you're either going to carry out wrath against the unbeliever and it's better than me, or it's already been carried out on your son and I don't have to do it. I'm just going to entrust you. I'm going to entrust you. I'm going to entrust myself to you and trust you. So Jesus, for us, continually Trusted in God. So in cases where you're experiencing unjust suffering, like Jesus, you should entrust yourself to God. Piper says this: You're not saying justice doesn't matter. You're not saying justice doesn't matter. I got an example I'm going to go to right here because um, I think Martin Luther King Jr. gives us a pretty good example of how to walk this line. To do I just entrust himself and say don't do anything? Because that's not what he did. He didn't do nothing but he did something in a certain way that was, I think, the perfect Christ-like way to fight injustice, right? Piper says, you're not saying justice justice doesn't matter. You're saying that it is God is the final judge and and he will settle accounts justly. My abuser will not have the last say. God will have the last say. This is why I need to defer to God. I don't need to do it. I just defer to God. And then you could say, well, what about MLK then? What about Martin Luther King Jr.? I, I know I talk about him a lot. It's probably because I read a lot about him a lot. I'm going to be writing on him a lot. So y'all can just be prepared over the next year to hear a lot about MLK. Um, but he's, he's a genius. He's an absolute genius. He died at the age of 39. Sadly, the day before he was killed, he preached a sermon. I've, I've gone to the mountaintop where he literally talks about he's fought the good fight. He knows that he, his time is coming. He's going to die. And the next day he was shot. The next day. It's, it's astounding. Um, anyway, back to this. Was Martin Luther King Jr. then wrong for fighting injustice? Is he not supposed to just not entrust himself completely to God and let, let the Lord do it? And I say he was not wrong because um, Christians are not to be silent regarding injustice. They're to submit to the governing authorities. Submission does not equal silence. They're not the same thing. So he was not wrong. And I would say the crux of Martin Luther King Jr.'s message was nonviolent fighting of justice. Martin Luther King Jr. says, Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. And so the, the manner in which he fought injustice was love, it was nonviolent. So fighting injustice is done with the light of love. And this means you submit yourself to God completely, yes, and you're trusting Him that. Because you're God, the arc of human history does bend towards justice ultimately. And because God will bring full justice one day, and I'm not Jesus, and Jesus has already received it, I can entrust myself to him that he will, for those that don't become believers, give them justice. And for those that do, it's already been put on them. But MLK himself was not wrong in fighting justice the way he did it because he did it with nonviolent means. So he still submitted I think, but was not silent. Ultimately, he did it the way I think Christ would prescribe it. Certainly, we can all go into history and find little places. But on the whole, his, his desire to fight against injustice was um, darkness can't drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate, but only love can do that. And his desire was for them to see the light of love in Christ and win them over to their, their injustice. So um, that's the example. And I think uh, if we want a tangible example, certainly a sinner, certainly a sinner, but a tangible example, we can look at Martin Luther King Jr. All right, here's the last one under gospel submission. And it's, it ends for us the actual gospel piece for us. Verse 24, he himself, so I'll go ahead and give you part B, Christ submitted to the Father by dying on the cross for our sins. This is not just the example but this is the gospel. This is the gospel. This this text is the anchor of how everything else is possible because Jesus Christ did this in verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Quoting Isaiah 53. For you were straying like sheep, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So verse 24 Christ submitted to the Father by dying on the cross for our sins. So we see the ultimate act of submission is someone perfect submitting themselves to the will of the Father to die for wicked sinners. So not only is He our example but literally He's the means. The gospel is the means by which when we see this and we've been literally made from an old creature to a new creature. An old creation to a new creation. Now because the Holy Spirit is in us we can live out these things. We can do these things. So I want to wanna look at those. There's four little things I want you to see in that verse, and I want them slowly to re-amaze you. Verse 21, four, verse twenty-four. He himself bore our sins in his body. So ultimately, as we're looking at this section, this text isn't primarily about your submission to the state. It's not primarily about your submission to your boss or your master. It's not primarily about your submission to your spouse, as we'll see in chapter 3. It's about submission to God. And it's based and founded on verse 24. Jesus bore our sins in his body. He submitted all the way to the will of the Father, willing to take all of our sins on him. And when he did, he bore our sins in his body on the tree, we know from Galatians, curses the man who hangs on the tree, that we might die to sin. So, sin killed us and we died to it. And then not only did we die and kind of come into this neutral place, but we've been moved and to live to righteousness. So, when we die to sin, sin no longer has hold on you, if you're a, a follower of Jesus. You, I know this sounds crazy to hear, you don't have to sin anymore. Unbelievers have no choice. We who are in Christ do not have to sin. Not only that, but if you look at the other side, not only do you not have to sin, but you also have the ability to live to righteousness. Your walking every day can be in righteousness. You can walk in a manner that is reflective of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. think about this for a second. How perfect is Christ, which we've already established? Because the Holy Spirit's in you, you have, with the Holy Spirit in you, the ability to not sin, but live righteously because he bore our sins on the tree. By his wounds, you have been healed. Peter reaches into Isaiah and pulls it in and says, you've been healed. Now, we're not talking about physical healing, talking about spiritual, he's healed you he's healed you spiritually of this sickness that we had called sin so Christ is not just the example that we see in verse 21 through 23 but for us in 24 he's the absolute means the gospel of Jesus Christ is the absolute means for us because of the Holy Spirit in us now, to be able to obey any of this entire section and the following section. Verse 24 is the anchor to it all. Jesus is the anchor to it all. The gospel of Christ is our only hope. And I want to, uh, I want to point out one little thing here because it's interesting. In verse 24, he himself bore our sins on his body on the tree. I know the, the cross was made of wood but he says tree not the cross I think that's interesting so in Genesis we have a tree set in the, in the garden And when they take upon the tree the tree brings death and in the New Testament the tree does the opposite because Christ Jesus bore the wrath of God on the tree The tree no longer brings death, but the tree gives life. And in Revelation chapter 22, we see that there's a tree of life again in heaven. And I think it's there illustrative of the fact that one day back in Genesis, the tree brought death, but then we have the tree that brings us life in the the cross and that tree of life is in heaven now, reminding us again, just an illustrative example of the holy city in heaven with Jesus that the tree brought death but also brings life to us now the cross is our only hope we come to that tree not like the Old Testament which kills but to the, Old, in the New Testament which gives life because he himself bore our sins on the tree and now we can live live righteously and so this particular text is ultimately about submission to God So here's, here's the one challenge today. We can talk about government and masters and cops and stop signs, but I wanna just, those are the, the secondary things. Just go right to the top and say, what is it that's keeping you from fully submitting to God? What is it that's keeping you from fully submitting to God? If you're doing that, all these other things take care of themselves. Look at what he's done for you in verses 21 through 24. There should be nothing that keeps us from submitting to him and loving him and giving him our entire lives. Because he's called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We're going to go into a time of response here by taking the Lord's Supper and worshiping together. And so I'm going to pray. And as we pray, you just take a few moments. Um, as we take the Lord's Supper, we know that it's a time for us to think and pray and meditate on the goodness of the gospel, what he's done, ultimately submitting ourselves to him. And it's a time for us to worship. So as I pray, whenever you're ready, you can come forward and get the, the elements, get the juice, get the wine, get the bread, and bring it back to your, to your seat. And I'll lead us corporately as we'll take the Lord's Supper together. There's also some in the back. If, if you're not a believer in Christ... You, you don't need to come forward. You don't need to come get it. All you need to do is just watch. The gospel is going to be proclaimed to you as it has been in his word. It's going to be proclaimed to you visibly. You're going to see elements of the gospel proclaimed to you. So if you're not a believer in Christ, just I invite you to watch. I'm going to pray and then we'll continue worshiping through the Lord's Supper and we'll continue worshiping through song. And as we do this, let's do it with a heart that's... Re- absolutely reflecting complete and submission to the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your love and your mercy. We thank you for the fact that Jesus bore our sin on the cross and because he died on the tree for us and has given us forgiveness and has given us his spirit. We are able to live as good citizens, as good spouses, as good... Employees, if you will. But ultimately, we're able to live as worshipers of Jesus. Be with us now, Lord, as we take the Lord's Supper and we have physical, tangible reminders of this amazing gospel. And God, after that, I pray that you would be with us in the midst of our worship and that we would sing out amazing praises to you for what you've done. Because you're worthy. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. As you're ready, you can come to the forward, to the back.